know, what have you been watching this week, Sarah? So, I haven't been watching it, but I've seen a trailer for Enola Holmes, which I thought looked quite interesting. It's got Millie Bobby Brown in it, which I don't think has got any relation to the Bobby Brown. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's also got Sam Kaplan from Me Before You and also The Hunger Games. And it's got Henry Cavill, who was Superman. So, yeah, that looks quite good, actually. And um, I think it's a 12, so I think it's pretty much for all the family, really, the older people in the in the family, really, if you've got kids. But, yeah, I like the sound of it. Well, I've just watched a few more episodes of Boys. Apart from that, I've been watching Bob Mortimer and Paul Whitehouse, that BBC series where they go fishing, where they just basically yeah. ramble on about stuff and fish and stay in nice, stay in nice places. And, mm. yeah. It's a nostalgia trip for like people who remember the far show and Vic and Bob, basically. So, it's, yeah, it's yeah. very relaxing viewing. I forgot to say Millie Bobby Brown is in Stranger Things. People would have seen her from that. But she looks much more grown up and has got a very English accent. I don't know whether she's from England, but yeah, very different role for her. And less disturbed, I imagine. And less yeah. disturbed, yes. <laughs> I did hear an interview with her recently mm-hmm. and... Yes, you are right. She is an English actress because when she was interviewed, she had this weird hybrid accent, this American uh, English accent. I thought she was also part Scandinavian, is she, as well? Well, she was born in Marbella uh, and then they moved, the family moved to Bournemouth, Dorset. I think I'm getting Scandinavia or the Nordics confused with Spain, as you do. And then at four years old, they moved to Orlando, Florida. Very go. nice. Lucky, lucky girl. Seen Mickey a lot, no doubt. And maybe Bobby, maybe they'd be doing a duet. Is Bobby Brown still alive? <laughs> Bobby remember. Brown, yes. Is he's, he still alive? He's, obviously, his partner was Whitney Houston, wasn't it? I know. He's still around, yeah. He is. Um, actually, I'm going to have to look him up now to, to make sure that I'm real. <laughs> I know, it's like, it's Bobby Brown. Bobby <laughs> Brown. Ah, he's still alive, he's 51. Whew, it's lucky. Yeah, good. Good. Good to hear you alive, Bobby Brown. <laughs> Absolutely. What a lovely chap. I'm not sure he was particularly. <laughs> I know. I was, uh, let's, not go, let's, not, let's not go there. Hey, here's hoping he doesn't listen to our podcast. Hey? <laughs> the idea of having a celebrity listeners would be amazing. It'd be even more bizarre if the only celebrity listener we have was Bobby Brown. Mm-hmm. I would like Olivia Coleman to listen to our podcast. <laughs> I watched her. What was she in? She was in some random thing. I can't remember what it was called, but she was in a program last night. She's a good laugh. We should get her on if we can. I think so. She's about the same age as us. We'll have a good old laugh. Not that I'm ageist or anything. I'm not ageist at all. We'll accept all ages. Anyone. (laughs) Would anyone like to come on our podcast? (laughs) We might be talking to ourselves, Rob. Or you and I are just having this conversation that's just out there in the public. Don't fall into that trap because your mum will be listening, that's for sure. Yeah, no (laughs) swearing, no swearing. Oh my God, right, okay, so let's get to it. Yeah, talking nonsense already. That's what it's all about. That glass of wine I've got beside me, isn't it? Oh, I know, and I've only got a coffee. I was planning to get some slightly more interesting refreshments ready, but it didn't happen. Okay, right, so what are we going to review this week? Should we start with The Shining? The Shining, okay. I mean, it's just an absolute belt. It's your one, isn't it? It is my one, You've yeah. been so keen to know what I thought, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll try and keep this short and sweet because I think there's going to be quite a lot to talk about in this film. Mm-hmm. So this was released in 1980, directed, of course, by Stanley Kubrick, based on the Stephen King novel of the same name, a screenplay by Stanley Kubrick and starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall and Danny Lloyd. So we have an aspiring author and recovering alcoholic Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, who's suffering from writer's block and so takes a job as the off-season caretaker at the remote Overlook Hotel in the hills of Colorado. It's not just him who'll be staying at the hotel. It's also his wife, Wendy, and, and his young son, Danny, who I imagine is probably, what do you reckon, six, seven years old? Or a bit older, I reckon. No, he's six. Is he really six years old? Okay. At the job interview, we know something's not right because Jack is warned about the dangers of isolation when the manager just drops into conversation how a previous family staying there all died after the husband killed his daughters and wife with an axe before shooting himself. Jack allays the manager's concerns, saying isolation is exactly what he needs as he plans to outline his, his next novel over the winter period when they'll be there. Before they move in, we see Danny at home talking to his imaginary friend, Tony, and he has what you suspect is some kind of premonition of future events at the hotel. And as Jack and Wendy are given the grand tour, we have a kind of old chef, Mr. Halloran, who is showing Danny the kitchens and sits down with him and discovers he has this rare psychic gift called The Shining. He warns him about the hotel's abandoned rooms, in particular the off-limits room 237. And then a month in, things begin to go seriously south as Jack basically fails to get out of his creative rut for writing his book and starts to slowly lose his mind. And he takes it out on his wife, Wendy, who he blames for his writer's block. And what starts as just little snipes at her grows to become something which is pretty scary and sinister and threatening. Meanwhile, whilst exploring the hotel on his trike, Danny is the first to see ghosts namely the twin daughters of the family were murdered. And he starts also to foresee a murder himself, which you put down to this psychic ability, which is looking actually into the future and also the past. Wendy grows increasingly worried about Danny when he finds a kind of a bruise or a mark around his neck after he visited room 237. And by this point, Jack himself has started to see kind of ghostly staff at the hotel himself, namely Lloyd the barman and Mr. Grady, the man who murdered the family. Mr. Grady warns Jack about Danny's abilities and kind of turns him against his son, And as Jack gets more and more delusional with visions and voices in his head, he goes in search for, by now, a hysterical Wendy and a petrified Danny who are attempting to flee the hotel. That's about it, really. Interestingly, you know, we we think of The Shining now as an absolute classic, but in actual fact, it didn't really come out to much critical acclaim. It's one of those films that's kind of grown in stature over time as it's almost been, you know, kind of a revisionist look at the film has seen it become more and more critically acclaimed. So, yeah, I mean, I think I've seen this film, I don't know, we used to watch it a lot at university, so I've probably lost count, but it's been a long time since I've sat and watched it from start to finish. And it's it's just fantastic. So, yes. now I got a message from you saying yeah. I'm just about to watch The Shining 
and it was daytime, wasn't it? I watched it in daytime because I thought if I watched it at night time, I would get scared. Oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that is cheating. <laughs> and also sometimes it's the only time I can watch films. <laughs> that's fair enough. But, so not, not quite as scary then during the day? I'm not sure whether it would be any different actually at night. I'm not sure. I watched it on my own though and nobody else in the house. So that's, that's kind of going out on a limb, isn't it? <laughs> watching a scary film on your own but is it scary i'll come on to that in a minute so i believe i watched this when i was about 18 i think it might have been on a glastonbury festival now that would be now that would be a place to watch the shining yeah and i watched blade runner at glastonbury festival oh what a double header (laughs) what a double header i think it was a glastonbury festival and i i don't think i watched all of it because i think i just caught the end and i think i've watched snippets of it on tv as well and i know it was recently on tv and i caught a snippet of it then as well and to be honest yeah I've forgotten most of it and as I said I think I only watched the end but I did find it interesting how this film actually started with the car on its way to the hotel and this beautiful mountainous scenery and then they they get to the Overlook Hotel in the middle of nowhere and it's very odd because the credits just appear over the screen and I think I could do that with an animated PowerPoint slide or something like that. It was very basic and looking at it, it also looked very dated. It's done in 1980, this film. We were talking about this when we were watching the film, actually. Yeah, because the collars are very big and it looks very 60s, 70s style. I'd say pass on that one. I also haven't read the book, so I don't know whether the the book was based in the 70s yeah. and maybe that's the reason it looks dated or whether as you say it was made in the late 70s released I, I don't know yeah was it scary I don't think so I think it's more psychological and actually some of the parts that I thought were scary when I was yay back when I watched it the first time didn't scare me as much now a days so I've matured you see but I think the flashing camera angles the red prominent colors that they had and the music is what makes it a little bit more interesting and psychological I think and if you switch off the music I don't think it would be particularly scary at all the twins used to scare me uh, down the corridor but they don't anymore and actually laughed at one I actually laughed at what they did at the first scene when they when we saw them in the games room and they just looked at each other and walked away. But later on, we see them say, hello, Danny, come play with us forever, ever and ever. And that sort of resonated with me, which was a bit, little bit creepy. And then he then goes and visits his parents in his bedroom and finds his dad. You know, he repeats what they had said. I want you to be happy here forever, ever and ever. And I, th- I think what makes it scariest is Jack Nicholson's eyebrows and smile. He's just got a haunting look about him, I think. I think he's the one that makes it scary, to be honest. There's some classic scenes and not to give too much away, some of these are going to just drill down the bar scene with the ghostly bartender, the maze, the huge lobby space that they had, the lady in the bar scene, the blood pouring through the lift doors, obviously the scene where he's axing the door down, little pig, little pig, let me in, here's Johnny kind of scene. And I've always wondered where the here's Johnny came from. And actually Kubrick didn't know where it came from either. I think Nicholson just ad-libbed that piece, but it came from a 1960s Johnny Carson show. And Kubrick was living in the UK, I believe, at the time. He's American, but he's living in the UK and he didn't really know what it was about, but kept it in. But all the shots were filmed at Elstree Studios and the exterior of the hotel was in Timberline Lodge in Oregon. 
but whatever room you were in was very simply kitted out and as I said it was kind of had that 60s 70s look about it but what was really bizarre is I think was the kid Tony his little friend and he was slightly possessed even before he got to the hotel he frantically would talk to Tony with his finger and then during part of the film he was slightly possessed he would go red rum red rum red rum and then you would see in the mirror what it reads back as I think Why did the males in this film seem to be affected initially rather than the wife? It was my question. I just, the way, because again, I haven't read the book and and it's very different from the book anyway. The way I saw it is that the hotel was effectively cursed. And I think because Jack Nicholson, sorry, Jack Nicholson's character, Jack, (laughs) (laughs) already happened to have a bit of a screw loose. And I just think it was his mental state started to deteriorate because of him writing his book and then it's almost like that was the trigger that spiraled everything whereas the wife you know she was there to to look after her family she didn't really have any stresses the only stresses she had I suppose was seeing her son showing very strange behavior and then that you know the horrible decline of her kind of relationship with her Mm, her husband mm. That's all I put it down to. I mean, yeah. obviously, da- Danny has The Shining, so right from yeah. the word go, yeah. I mean, he's doomed. I think what's interesting about the film, and when I was watching it the second time round, is the ending isn't necessarily what you might expect. I mean, I'm not going to say any more than that, but you know what I mean? Like, it could finish in a, 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 let's just say, a far more climactic way than it does. And in actual fact things don't turn out terribly for everybody yeah because there's so much tension and it just, it just gets more and more unsettling and yeah well we've got to have survivors don't we yeah to tell the story that's true anyway but i just also thought the, the random scene where the wife looks into this room when she's a bit like whoa what's going on and she sees a person dressed as a boar doing something naughty with a man in, in one of the rooms i didn't get that why why was that necessary to be in the film I remember watching it thinking, yes, okay, so this is the first time she sees something. You know, I suppose the spirits do eventually kind of get her, as it were. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's It was in the book. Apparently, it's right. as simple as that. There was lots of stuff in the book that just didn't translate well to the screen. And there's lots of stuff with the animals, apparently, in the book. And Kubrick decided any inclusion of that particular part of the story had to be minimal because it just didn't work with his adaptation. So I suppose what you get is one very random scene that does yeah. fit exactly that. I mean, it's like, just totally random. <laughs> but there weren't any boarheads, though, were there, at the party that was going on? So that's why I didn't get it. I didn't see it as a fancy dress. It was more sort of black tie-do yeah. that was going on. Very, very random. But I think I think this film has inspired a lot of other films uh, during in the making or books as well. You got the maze in Harry Potter, the Goblet of Fire. You got the huge lobby, which is pretty much replicated in Hotel Transylvania. You got Ready Player One, that's got scenes of this film, and that's a Spielberg film. And I believe Spielberg was a fan of Kubrick. You've got the writer piece, and Stephen King's used that before, also in Misery. You've got the bar area with the slightly ghostly bartender. Passengers is a prime example of that with Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence. They had a robot equivalent of that, I would say. And then you've got the kids in the kitchen cupboard, kids hiding in Jurassic Park kitchen. And then there's some unused footage of the VW Beetle traveling to the Overlook Hotel was used in Blade Runner, apparently, to give a happier ending. And Kubrick actually respected Ridley Scott, who directed Blade Runner, from his work for Manians. And he said, you can use some of the footage for that. 
and I've got some numbers for you as well. 1980 was when this film was, was released, and to be honest, I felt it was a little bit older. 127 takes to shoot the baseball bat scene. Wife tried to beat Jack. Three days to shoot the Here's Johnny scene, and 60 doors they went through as well. 50 takes to do the ball rolling to Danny when he was playing with his cars. Danny was six years old in real life. And also, I think his name was Danny and Jack Nicholson were called Jack in the film. And that kept it nice and easy, didn't they? And apparently Stanley Kubrick was very protected over Danny. And he made sure he, was, he wasn't exposed to any scary scenes. For example, when Wendy was shouting at Jack and accused him of hitting him, it was actually a dummy that she was lifting. Kubrick didn't want Danny involved in that scene at all. So he was very protective over him. 17 was the age of Danny when he saw the uncut version of the film in real life. 217 was the haunted room in the book, which is where the family stayed, but 237 was the room in the movie. The reason why they did that is the real hotel staff suggested they do not use 217 because nobody will ever stay there again. And um, Stanley Kubrick was obviously a perfectionist. I mean, he, 127 times they had to shoot that baseball scene, which is just ridiculous. And I know from reading, Duval says it was most um, challenging role she'd ever done. And Nicholson said it was the hardest role he'd seen an actress take on as well. She had nervousness, exhaustion, physical illness and hair loss during this film because she had so much pressure from the director, I believe, from this. But she said it's one of the best roles that she's ever done. And also, Angelica Houston was, I think, dating Jack Nicholson at the time. And apparently he would come home after a day's shoot and go straight to bed. So he was obviously, as a director, quite hard work to work with. But they got the results that they wanted. We said last week that Stephen King was a fan of The Quiet Place because we reviewed that last week. But it, apparently he didn't enjoy this film because it steered away from his original novel. Castings, Jessica Lang was recommended for the part after reading the novel, but Kubrick wanted an emotional, fragile character, which is where Duval portrayed that. And Nicholson thought she did an incredible job, as I mentioned before. Robert De Niro was spotted after Taxi Driver. He was potential casting for this. Robin Williams as well, which I was really surprised about, but Kubrick didn't like the follow-on from Mork and Mindy to this kind of style film. And Harrison Ford was even considered for this role. Stephen King also suggested Michael Moriarty and John Voight to be the main lead for this. But I think Jack Nicholson makes this film, really. He's the scary one in the film. He's the one with the scary eyebrows and the, the cheeky smile. And if you watch any other film, like Witches of Eastwick, for example... He's the scary person in that. So I think he sees these kind of roles very well. As I said, I don't think it's scary. I think it's jumpy and just psychological. I don't know what your thoughts, Rob. I think it should fit in the horror category, but it's not surprising that on IMDb it's a horror drama because it's more unsettling. I just think it's an unsettling film. I wouldn't say there's any jump scares. I think the scene where Jack goes into the room and this beautiful woman comes out of the bath and he kind of starts kissing her and then looks up and it's an elderly lady with lots of horrible scars on her body. That was pretty rough. There's also the, you know, when Danny saw the two twins dead in the corridor, clearly from the time when they were axed up. That was pretty grim. And I think it was also just simple camera effects. So often just to heighten yeah. the tension, we would cut to like a close-up of Danny having a fit ruling or something. It's more of the kind of editing techniques, I think, that was used as well to heighten the 
the really scary moments and of course the music I thought the music was great I mean right from the off you're unsettled by the score and it just continues mm. to kind of ramp up and up I thought the cinematography was stunning I obviously Kubrick is complete auteur and like you say perfectionist there's so many amazing scenes in it I mean like you say there are the classics like you know you've mm. gone through them all but I think that scene where Jack Nicholson walks into the ballroom and suddenly, you know, from nowhere in the background, it's full of, you know, people attending a dinner dance, sitting down, eating, drinking. I thought it was stunning. It was so kind of believable. But I I just thought it was the, the attention to detail of almost every single shot I thought was absolutely stunning. Mm. It's interesting. Shelley Duvall... She was almost harassed into this performance. And if you watch, you know, the making of documentary, which is worth watching, you can see it quite clearly as a tactic from Kubrick. He let Jack Nicholson pretty much do his stuff, but he he kind of lays into Shelley Duvall and deliberately. And he wanted to make sure that she was stressed. She she was unsettled. She was you know in this nervous state the whole time. For example, in in the documentary when they're discussing a scene whilst they're shooting, he actually says while Shelley Duvall's there and another member of the crew don't sympathise with Shelley, then goes on to tell Shelley Devan it doesn't help you. And there was another scene in the documentary where she misses her mark on when she's supposed to come out of the hotel for this scene that they've been prepping for hours and he just lets loose on her. And it's quite disturbing to watch. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's good to know that you then see Duval being interviewed looking back on it and understanding why he did it. And like you say, it got fantastic results. But there were times, I mean, she does spend almost the entire film in this hysterical state. I think there were times, I think it was particularly the axe scene where the camera is on her for quite a long time when she's holding the knife, carrying away, uh, and you see the axe coming through the door where the hysterics, I don't know, sometimes feel slightly overplayed, but it's a really kind of minor point. I'm a massive Jack Nicholson fan. And so, you know, One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest, which he did, I think, two or three years before this, It's one of my favourite films, Uh, and so I I love this film as well. And whilst Jack Nicholson is known for his his kind of facial expressions and that grin and the eyebrows and the mischief, I suppose, that you always see in his characters. I think this is the only film I've seen him in where he's truly menacing. The scene where he is following Shelley Duvall from the lobby all the way to the stairs and all the way up the staircase, kind of goading her while she's holding the baseball bat is phenomenal. I mean, if you want to, like, as a piece of acting, it's phenomenal. He was quite, I thought, quite kind of disturbing at times. There were some shots where he just had a very sullen face. Or when he was talking to Danny in that scene you refer to, saying, I wish I could stay here forever and ever and ever. It's a very unsettling scene with his son. And the expressions you see in his face are not the expressions you normally associate with him. So I suppose his range in it, I think, is, is fantastic. And it's not too long. It's two hours. There is a longer version that was released in the states which is which you'll you know if you go to imdb you'll see you'll see it listed as two hours 20 something there was a there was a u.s release that was longer um it's just very much of its time i, I just think it's fantastic it makes me want to watch more kubrick films it made me want to watch the documentary again and yeah as i say i, I just thought it was fantastic and, and all these little nuggets like you say of the ho- the hotel 
the Timberline Lodge requesting that they don't use the room 217 in the film because <laughs> they don't want people... Be- I don't blame them. I don't really don't no, blame them. I I don't. They're right. Nobody would stay there. It's like number 13, isn't it? Some people don't want to stay in number 13. Yeah. Do they? No, exactly. <laughs> and this whole thing about the hotel being cursed, you know, right from the start, the manager explains how the hotel was built on an ancient native Indian yes. site. Yeah, I caught that. And there's lots of native Indian uh, iconography in the film. And I suppose, you know, you could read this film as like curse being placed on modern society. There's so many blatant shots of material modern day goods in this, whether it's processed food cans lots of products you see at the home before they go to the hotel and like the advert on the TV. I think it's definitely obviously saying something about that. And I don't know much about this, but obviously there are all these conspiracy theories that Kubrick was the one that filmed the moon landing. And there's a whole documentary about various references to the moon landing with the iconography in the film as well, which I'm sure is absolute oh. nonsense, but it makes for an entertaining story. So yeah, I just really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's iconic. Um, there's lots of scenes that are very memorable and great acting, I have to say, and good on them for persevering with having to retake scene after scene after scene. I have a few question marks, I have to say, on the film because I didn't get everything, you know, <laughs> what happened and, and stuff like that. So anyway, I'm going to give it eight and a half out of ten just simply because it's so iconic and it's been used in umpteen other films as well. I'm going to give it nine and a half out of ten, purely because, yeah, it's it's always been one of my favourites. As I say, the cinematography in it is stunning. The only thing in it is maybe Shelley Duvall at times seems that she might be kind of overacting. Yeah. I like my horrors like this. I don't like, I don't like gory, proper jump scare horrors, disturbing horrors. I like ones like this (laughs) that are just slightly unsettling, but you can watch them. And I suppose if ever there was, I don't know, a kind of a mainstream drama horror that I would want to watch over and over, it'd be this one. Oh, and obviously I think Jack Nicholson's amazing. He is amazing. He makes this film. All good. Well, all work and no playing makes Jack a dull boy. And on to this second workaholic and alcoholic film with Jack in A Star Is Born, or Jackson in A Star Is Born. So uh, released in 2018 with a directorial debut from Bradley Cooper and based on the 1954 and 1976 screenplays, we get the Star Is Born revamped, I guess. You'll find in 1954 that version of the film was Judy Garland, James Mason, and 1976, which I think more people remember because it's more recent, I guess, Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. So this film follows the lives of Ali, Lady Gaga, and Jackson Maine, or Jack, played by Bradley Cooper. So when they meet, Jack is a famous country and western singer and Ali works as a waitress and he has a fascination with her and soon discovers she's got a talent for songwriting and is a great singer as well and invites her to his show that he has and while she's backstage he invites her to actually come on to the main stage with him and sing a song she created in a drunken night with him in a supermarket car park as you do just as she was about to give up singing um she's thrown into limelight and her career takes off from there really and that's all down to jack 
and their love blossoms, um, which is lovely to watch as well. But it's occasionally volatile because he's, he's got a big problem with alcoholism. And certainly when she becomes more popular and he becomes appears as older and his career is on the downward spiral, he just drinks more and more and more and starts to... You just see him really basically destroying himself. Um, and his brother, Bobby, and Ali, you know, constantly picking him up each time now this film won oscars for best achievement in music writing for a motion picture but it missed out on lots of other awards because i think bradley cooper and lady cargill themselves were up for oscars for this but it missed out from quite a few great films bohemian rhapsody green book and the favorite as well i mean i love this film because it can really see the strong connection between lady gaga and bradley cooper you would almost think there's something going on between the two of them but I, i don't think there ever was what I also like is that it's got Greg Grunberg in it as Jack's driver, and he's Bradley Cooper's buddy from the six-year TV series of Alias, which I used to love as well. And the songs are strong. I have to say I don't recall remembering some of the other songs that Lady Gaga sings after Shallow, but it obviously got that award as well. And even Mark Ronson was pulled in to support the song for Shallow. There's lots of factoids I can give you, but I'd love to have your thoughts on this film. I could have watched more of it. It's one of those films that just oozes star quality. The chemistry between Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper just totally draws you in. It was electric, wasn't it? Absolutely electric. And I just thought it was two very, very intelligent performances. Bradley Cooper went to some lengths to play this part. He played the guitar for a year. He apparently had to get like a fake spray tan and (laughs) menthol was placed around his eyes to get that glazed look that you'd associate with someone who's an alcoholic. The deep, deep tone of his voice was apparently incredibly tricky to pull off. He actually studied Sam Elliott's dialect for months before he was asked to play the role. Yeah. Um, and he paid Bobby, didn't he? He was he was the brother. That's right. And he plays Bobby, his much older brother. That relationship, I thought, was very, very well played. So, yeah, all of the performances, I thought, were really, really intelligent. It's like Cooper gave space or gave way to let Lady Gaga almost take the stage in this film. I mean, obviously, it's the first time she's been in a feature film. Uh, what a revelation. Unbelievable. And, of course, you know, I suppose it's made it all the more impactful because you think of Lady Gaga and you think of this kind of alter ego that she has traditionally brought to her performances and her songwriting, you know, this extremely exuberant, extravagant performer. And this is just her stripped completely bare, right down to the fact there's not really any makeup. You see her as you've never seen her before. And so I think... That in itself is intriguing. To then get this performance out of her, I think is just phenomenal. Yeah, I just thought it was a beautifully balanced duo, if you like, from both of them. The dark and the light of the film, I think, works really well. The uplifting moments are truly uplifting, thanks largely to the amazing music performances. The very, very first scene is so fantastic. You basically just join this film with Bradley Cooper's character as he swigs a whiskey or takes some pills, and then he's literally performing in front of thousands of people, and it looks real. I mean, it, and of course it is real. All of the songs were performed. They got time at two or three music concerts, including Glastonbury and Coachella, and apparently one of Lady Gaga's concerts at Fenway Park. They 
place microphones in the stadium and ask them to shout out Ali, Ali, Ali to try and use as much of this real footage in the film as possible. And it's really, really effective. It's, it's never once do you think this looks really cheesy or this looks really staged. Um, even Bradley Cooper's performances, I think, are spot on. And obviously, it's a story that's been put to screen three times before. Having said that, I wasn't familiar with the story because I suppose, you know, the last time it was done was in the 70s with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson, so no one would really know about the story. And it's just such a tragic tale that I mm. suppose it's it's like a, just a sucker punch to your emotions, this film, I found. Yeah. And I just thought, what an amazing directorial debut. Apparently, this whole style of the film, which feels very almost glossy, but not in a cheesy way, in the same way that I felt there's just so much star quality, the whole look of the film was just beautiful he got that apparently from a Metallica video he watched when he, oh, right. when he was a youngster he placed the, yeah. the whole star was based on that the only part of it which bothered me was the character of Rafi who plays the record producer who discovers Ali whilst on tour with Jackson and starts to turn her into a star and starts to turn her if you like into a pop act which is very much juxtaposed to the very this almost classical carol king type uh, songwriter i felt the speed at which she went from one to the other to her appearing on saturday night live with this troop of dancers around her and gyrating on stage and these these outfits i thought that just happened for me too soon and i thought his character the record producer was was almost pantomime i thought he's just so slimy i just thought he was, he was played too on the nose for me but apparently having read about it bradley cooper deliberately decided not to go with a montage of how she got to that point he decided that just for the audience just to see her doing a saturday night live performance was enough to let them know how far she'd come but yeah that was the only bit that jarred for me in terms of the narrative in terms of the characters that was the only character that jarred bobby's character i thought was amazing in the film, Bobby is the one always picking up Jackson. He's that much older. He's probably like 25 years older than him. He's almost like a father figure. And in actual fact, as much as Jackson pushes him away, and eventually in the film, you know, he leaves the crew, Bobby does, the scene where Bobby drives Jackson back to the home after he comes out of rehab and Jackson gets out of the car and stops for a moment and in a very emotional a nuanced way says that how much he admires his brother he was the one that was his hero he was the one he looked up Mm. to which went against everything that they always told each other and he shuts the door and you can tell bobby's gonna well up he just immediately just gets in the car and reverses up the drive away and you just have the camera looking at him as he looks back as he's reversing I had just that expression on his face just said everything. It wasn't overplayed. There weren't tears. It was just a really poignant moment. And I think that's the thing for the film. It's just so grown up and intelligent. Yes, it has the entertainment. Yes, it has the over-the-top drama. It has the music that you want. But it does have some really, really hard-hitting yeah, moments in it, which just completely get you. I, I, I loved it. I remember when I first saw this, I was totally taken with it. Yeah, I was as well. Yeah, I, I, just, I just love it. And it's amazing that, you know, Bradley Cooper must have played the guitar before, but I think he was taught by Willie Nelson's son, 
Lucas Nelson. And also on the stage, the onstage scenes, you can see Lucas Nelson and his band, Promise of the Neil, were his supporting band, basically, during this as well. So it's quite impressive when you hear about actors not being perfect already at doing music and they're doing a musical, let's just say, and do it really, really well. And his, you're right, his voice, he sounded gravelly, but great voice. But at the same time, you could tell when he drunk too much as well. How he does that, I, I don't know. It's not an easy thing to do. He obviously has a love for music. You mentioned Metallica because at the moment he's directing Bernstein, Bernstein, if you're American, based on Leonard Bernstein's composer of West Side Story. That's the next film release that he's doing and he's directing that as well, as I've mentioned. And yeah, his first director of debut was pretty impressive, I have to say. Castings, Clint Eastwood was originally going to be directing this and they were talking about Star is Born remake back in 2011. And they were thinking of including Beyonce as the star instead of Lady Gaga at the time. However, the project was delayed because of Beyonce's pregnancy at the time. And then there was talks with Christian Bale, Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp, Will Smith. I'm not sure whether some of these guys could actually sing, to be honest. And apparently Bradley Cooper really fought to be the director of this. He wanted to obviously give it a go and he, I think he did a fantastic job I mean it cost 36 million to make and then worldwide grace was 436 million dollars and that's impressive I mean not as impressive obviously as what you would get with the Avengers movies where they're in the billions but still you know starting from 36 million that's not a bad grossing amount to be honest I love it I think it's just beautiful to see their relationship blossom in that film you kind of thought, have they got a relationship going in real life? Because often when you see that in other films, there's something going on in the background. I don't think there actually was, but I saw the performance they did in the 2019 Oscars and they looked as close as ever then when they performed. And uh, it was just beautiful to watch, really. I did hear that Bradley Cooper did split from his wife oh, right. around, okay. around this time. Apparently she found it incredibly hard, just purely... I think just this press speculation, and yeah. they did, and they did separate. He had a, he had a kid with her as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other, the only other Who final, knows? the only other final point I wanted to make because this is something really interesting, and I think it speaks to the intelligence of the film, especially the music. There were three occasions in this film. There may have been may have been more, but I noticed it on three occasions where you had these pieces of instrumental that were played over these really key parts of the film. One was the morning after scene when Annie was sitting there. You just hear this piano note playing as she's staring in spaces. You know, I suppose it's maybe this idea of kind of like she was thinking about something. The proposal scene where he slips on that guitar string ring onto her finger Again, it went to silence and there was this little short little kind of instrumental. And when when Jackson has that infamous accident on stage when she collects her Grammy, again, when it goes quiet, there's this rumble of drums. I just thought it was a nice touch that mm. they played with those kind of ideas in the film. It wasn't a, it wasn't like an out of the packet, straightforward drama. I just thought it had a little bit more than that. For me, I'm going to give this nine and a half 
And the only thing that let it down, as I say, was just those two bits for me. The record producer that was just too pantomime for, for mm. the rest for the rest of the characters. He seemed almost out of place, and the whole speed at which she kind of turned into this pop phenomenon just was a little bit rushed for me. But apart from that, loved it. Yeah, no, I I loved it too, and I'm going to give it nine and a half as well out of ten. And um, the only thing that docks it for me is, is on occasions I felt she looked too confident on the piano and singing when she's really actually a beginner. So that's my only criticism, really, of it. It's a beautiful film to see the relationships, and it's also incredibly sad. And I love that shallow uh, song. I've tried to sing it many times, obviously not as good. So I've had my Alexis comes up with the, the words, and I sing along to that. But yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great film. So nine and a half rounds, so that's great scores. And I don't think you should do yourself down. I, I would put you right up there with Lady Gaga. <laughs> I'm just envisaging it now. Yeah, I'm the one without the makeup version of Lady Gaga. <laughs> and I can pretend I'm Bradley Cooper, right? Yeah. <laughs> you get people talking now, Rob. You get people talking. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I don't know. Anyway. Anywho. Anywho. Let's move on to selection of, for this week. I think you went first last week, so I'll give the genre this week. Okay. It is adventure. Adventure. Okay. I have 32. I'm going to go for number one. Number one is Castaway with Tom Hanks in it from 2000. That's amazing. Do you know why? What? I've never seen it. You're kidding me. No. I I I love Tom Hanks. I was. I, I love, love Tom Hanks. I love Tom Hanks as well. He's the best person ever. And I can't believe you've not seen. This. I know. And only a couple of weeks ago, when for some reason. I was, I don't know, something to Tom Hanks was on my mind. I remember thinking, I've really got to watch Castaway. Um, amazing. It's super, super chuffed with that one. Great. Okay, so this this came out in 2000. A FedEx executive undergoes a physical and emotional transformation after crash landing on a deserted island, starring Tom Hanks and Helen Hunt. But more Tom Hanks, I would say, on the basis. Love Tom Hanks. The basis he's stranded on a desert island. Yeah, yeah. Wilson, Wilson. So you know bits about it. Exactly, I know too much about it. (laughs) It's a cracking film. It's streaming on Now TV, Apple TV, and Sky Go, and you can buy it fairly inexpensively. Also, that's probably why it's not to rent. You can buy it for about you know minimum of four ninety nine from like Amazon Prime, Apple TV, Rakuten, Sky Store, etc., etc. Right, give me a genre. It is guilty pleasures. Oh my god, it had to happen at some point. It had to happen. So this could be. What do we class as guilty pleasures? Well, we'll soon find out, won't we? <laughs> so guilty pleasures, I class as a film that may not have won Oscars. I quite like is good, but may not be the critics' choice of the year, for example. Yeah, I would say it's, it's a film that's certainly not critically acclaimed, like you say, that probably didn't win any any awards, but has a fond place in many people's hearts. Yeah, so it's a mainstream kind of film mainstream as well. Mainstream film, be. yeah. Yeah. Go on then, how many? At the moment, I've got 12. I've got 12? I've got 43. Oh my goodness. I think I probably need to move more across. And, and maybe we haven't quite solidified exactly what, a guilty pleasure is to me compared to what it is to you. I don't know. Well, maybe we just play it like that. Play I think we should. You. I think we should. Okay, good. So if you've got 12, I'm going to go for number three, please. 
Oh, what is it? Is it a comedy? <laughs> this is quite a recent one. Okay. It was on Netflix. Uh-huh. Is it the one I didn't like? <laughs> it's Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. <laughs> Brilliant. Excellent. <laughs> I can't believe it. Yeah, yeah, no. I don't know what it is about this one. It just, it just got me. That's all I can say. There's, I mean, you know... I think that's the important thing to say about guilty pleasures. My guilty pleasure will be someone else's worst film ever. So that which is totally allowed. So <laughs> it's sadly, it might mean that I have to watch a film I really don't like, as does Sarah. So yeah. I have no idea. I, I imagine this is probably not a film you like too much. But anyway, at least at least it's light-hearted. It was all comedy. right. When I think we gave a mini review of it last time. We so did, we, we did. We're going to go in deep, deeper. <laughs> going to go in deep. <laughs> yeah. Great. I That's a good, uh, good list for this week. Well, I think so. I mean, you go from The Shining to Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> Sorry, Fire Saga is just a beautiful transition. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't need to say really what it's about and where you can find it. I think it's on Netflix. <laughs> Should we just Hopefully. leave? Should we just, should we just leave it as a, tr- as a treat for everyone to uh, to, yeah. to discover? It's Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> That's all you need to know. And it has Will Ferrell starring alongside Rachel McAdams with an amazing part played by Dan Stevens from Downton Abbey fame. Uh, he's done a few films now, but yeah, and, and also a whole host of ex Eurovision contestants. Yes, there are. Yeah, yeah. I remember, it's all flooding back. Oh, to you. Yeah. It's all flooding back. And of course, Pierce Brosnan, who plays Yay. Will Ferrell's Icelandic yeah. dad. Yeah, and they all speak <laughs> they Icelandic more. accents. Yeah. They certainly do. <laughs> What's that oh song? Ding God. dong. Yeah, 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 ding dong. I mean, I, when I first heard it, it turned my stomach. Uh, by the end of the film, I'm loving that. I'm absolutely loving yeah, it. Yeah, and it will stick with you for a few days later as well. I know that. Good. No, great. So, Castaway and. Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. Ah, right. It so almost good. implies there could be more stories about Fire Saga, which, which <laughs> would be fine by me. Maybe there will be. You never know. With the children, maybe next time. <laughs> anyway, right. well, have a great week, Rob, and to our listeners as well. I'm off to put the dinner on, and you're off to sing "Shallow," aren't you, in front of your adoring fans? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sing it. <laughs> I'm really out, probably out of tune. Nonsense. Have a great week. I Take will. Take care. See you next week. Bye. Bye.